This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible and really stupid business model. This is hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of Agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week going so far? Please, Bernie. I can't go to a DSA meeting. Please, Bernie. (laughs) Uh, I watched the very slightest amount of CNN last night. And yet again, Van Jones just got me so angry. Last night, he was saying, Amy Klobuchar did so well, and it's because she has a story, and that story resonates with people. And that's what gets people to vote for you. Stories, stories that people can believe in. I was just like, dude, that's like, you're not talking about a political campaign, you're talking about an advertising campaign. What about policy? I don't care about their policies. I just care about their stories. Are they fun to drink a beer with at a ball game? God, what a maroon. Uh, uh, okay, sure. But uh, the story of her eating uh, salad off a comb sort of rules. I, I really, that's the most I've identified. That's not the story that they were talking about. But, uh, that story is the most I've ever identified with any presidential <laughs> candidate ever in history. It's disgusting. Today, neoliberal financialization has caused and is continuing to cause the collapse of small town and rural America, leading to the perfect environment for the rise of authoritarian populism. But there's no need to worry. Did you hear the Trump administration declared victory in LBJ's war on poverty? Yeah, me neither. But apparently, that actually happened. Trump said that he won the war on poverty. He finally won LBJ's war on poverty. So why didn't the Democrats, Democratic Party's liberal intelligentsia see Trump coming, prematurely bragging about what they wholeheartedly believe would be their imminent victory before Election Day 2016? More importantly, why do those who support Trump in rural areas embrace authoritarian populism? Instead of a critique of the austerity policies and the impact of private equity on their communities, which have stripped them of their economic and political power, as well as, at times, their community's identity. With automation's continued impact on the human labor force of agriculture and Wall Street-funded corporate invasions of small-town America destroying mom-and-pop businesses that have been the area's backbone, everyone is affected from newborns and their new moms who no longer have access to prenatal care at a nearby hospital, to the farm workers who made up the local workforce, to the elderly who no longer have a rural nursing home to administer the assistance they desperately need, from cradle-to-grave small-town rural America is being abandoned. We'll learn what this abandonment has meant to those in the hinterland when we talk in a few minutes to anthropologist Mark Edelman, author of the Jacobin article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. Mark teaches anthropology as a professor at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Mark is working on a project on the history of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Peasants and Other People Working in Rural Areas, called the UNDROP, UNDROP, which the General Assembly adopted in 2018 after a 17-year campaign by transnational agrarian movements and human rights organizations. He was part of the convening group of the Emancipatory Rural Politics Initiative and International Research and Action Collaborative on Authoritarian Populism in the Rural World. In other words, Mark's an expert on what happens in rural areas. Follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Edelman NYC, ironically, Mark Edelman NYC. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, uh, what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? What should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. That makes this week's question from hell, what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? What should be the mascot? for the Anthropocene. The person with the best answer to this week's question will be announced on Thursday. That would be tomorrow. But they will win a book we featured on the show yesterday, earlier this week, Brown Boucher and Robert Fletcher's book, 
the conservation revolution, radical ideas for saving nature beyond the Anthropocene. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell from our get right after our guest. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about evil. So you do the math. This is hell. I read that incomplete and completely wrong. My eyes jumped. Let me do that again. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. Evil is something that threatens you, something that frightens you, something that terrorizes you, something that you can't quite fully understand or get a grip on for just how malevolent it is or why, but you know down into the sinewy depths of your bones and with every beat of your heart, evil is something you should fear. It's a survival mechanism to protect us from what might do us harm. Fear is a rational concern for the safety and security of ourselves and loved ones. Fear, although unpleasant, protects us from danger. Sure, some people are into fear, the simulated fear of a movie or a book or a haunted house, but not real fear when you are actually concerned for your life, when you are facing real danger, not that concocted for your entertainment. It's a very disagreeable feeling, and when true fear washes away, there is real, oh my god, I can't believe I'm still alive relief, not mere joy from the thrill ride being over. Then there's the intense, extreme, even irrational fear, the totally disgusted aversion to something that makes interaction with it nearly impossible. The fear of something that is a phobia. And I have a phobia that I have never admitted to anyone, not to the person who I share my life with, not to my closest friends and confidants, not to my family members, not to anyone. And to be honest, I'm just now sharing my phobia with myself, realizing that I have a dislike verging on abhorrence if not utter hatred for something we depend upon for our very survival. Without it, we die, I die. It's like being afraid of breathing air, and that is a real, real phobia called a nemophobia, or fear of drinking water, also known as hydrophobia. How can you continue to exist on planet Earth? How can you live and breathe when you have an irrational fear of something that is necessary for your survival? And what I fear, I do need to live. Without it, I will die. So I must interact with it. Something that frightens with me, frightens the hell out of me, every moment of every day. My name is Chuck M, and I have chromatophobia, aka crematophobia. And no, that does not mean I fear the chrome on cars or crema in me cafe. It means the intense fear of money. According to the website, fearof.net, awesome URL. Some phobics are only afraid of the corrupting power of money. Still, others might fear financial failures or the responsibility money brings. I did fear financial failure and the responsibility money brings until I became a financial failure and no longer had access to money or any, or any responsibility that comes with it. But more than fearing the responsibility that comes with money, I just hated the responsibility that came with money. Why do I have to pay for health care in the first place, let alone be responsible for the onslaught of bills and fees and interest on my debt and all the time that is consumed by paying those bills and dealing with them? Why is education something that is commodified and thus by definition is not accessible to everyone? And that accessibility is only to determined by the amount of money you have, how rich you are, your class, which is so often tied up with race and gender under capitalism in the U.S. Why is the responsibility of money imposed on me at every turn in the U.S. when developed economies and some that are not that developed do not impose such an unhappy burden on their increasingly depressed citizens in this age of neoliberal financialization and the pre precarity it forces upon all of us? Fearof.net continues, explaining that some cases of fear of money phobia might be related to fear of germs as a result of which the person might be afraid to touch money handled by someone else. Many go to the extent of wearing gloves to avoid getting sick after handling money, and that is definitely not my chromatophobia. The only time I feared handling money was when I had a lot on me and I'm stumbling home drunk and I realize I look like the perfect mark to be robbed on my staggered walk home. And also while participating in the more informal economy and the necessary delivery of untraceable cash and non-sequential unmarked bills. 
Fearof.net concludes, in general, chromatophobia is a rare phobia affecting a lot of people, or not actually a lot of people, they say a handful of people around the world. But I'm betting there are a lot more than only a handful of people who share my fear of money. My fear isn't guided by responsibility or germs, it's guided by the first definition they gave, and that is, I fear the corrupting power of money. I fear the dishonesty that is often employed to earn money. I fear that money will change who I am as I take in considerations of my bottom line to define and determine my human relationships. I am frightened that with money, I would lose any perspective I, ha I would have of being poor, of empathy for poverty, of concerns for those at the very bottom of our money pile who take on the biggest burden of suffering. And I fear for those who are suffering because of the impositions of money and how it insists you conform to its market or you will be punished with starvation and homelessness as the punitive nature of money manifests itself on the streets in a form of the public torture of abandonment. Money scares the hell out of me. That does not mean I do not want to earn money. Again, we all need it for our survival. If I didn't, and I, I didn't need it for my survival, I wouldn't need money. So the, the cleanest way I can earn money, I figure, is to have the show completely listener-supported, basing our entire bottom line on the merits of what we do. We are not earning money by playing ads to sell you stuff you likely don't need and will probably end up in a landfill poisoning the earth with the chemicals it leaches out, chemicals that it introduced into the environment when it was being created in the first place. So its entire product lifespan did nothing more than contribute additional cancer-causing toxins to our environment. That's the kind of money that frightens me, the kind of money that would force me to endorse a product I literally find sickening in order to make a livelihood. Not that I have much of a livelihood. I suffer for, from chromatophobia, a fear of the corrupting power of money, and I would be shocked to discover that fearof.net is correct when they claim that only a handful of people around the world fear that corrupting power. Think about every relationship in your life. Every one of them has been affected by money, potentially corrupted by money. Money makes us dishonest, forcing us to speak its language and conform to its discipline. I know it's a radical claim, but I really do think money is the root of all evil. And this is hell. Coming up, small town and rural America have been devastated by austerity, by private equity, and for whatever reason, that has made them turn to conspiracy theories, which blame immigrants and minorities and outsiders of all types, ending with an embrace of the kind of authoritarian populism that now resides in the White House. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? What should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a book we featured on yesterday's show, Bram Boucher's and Robert Fletcher's book, The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell. Small town and rural America were destroyed and continue to be destroyed by neoliberal financialization, which has made them the perfect targets ripe for authoritarian populism. At least that's what today's guest argues, here to help us understand what the hell has been happening in the hinterland. Anthropologist Mark Edelman is author of the Jacobin Magazine article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. Mark teaches anthropology as a professor at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. You can follow Mark on on Twitter, at Mark Edelman NYC. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mark. Nice to be here. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for being on the show. This is a fantastic article, and I know a lot of people wrote about uh, what was taking place in rural America with sweeping generalizations immediately after the election in 2016. So I really appreciate this far better analysis than what we heard right after the election of 2016. Let's go back to that election as you do at the beginning of your article. You write in the wake of that 2016 U.S. presidential election, the liberal intelligentsia belatedly realized that rural and small town America was in crisis. One sector of liberal opinion insisted that the key to Donald Trump's victory lay in racism rather than economic distress. Another sector, blind to the central importance of racial inequality for U.S. capitalism, preferred to stress narrowly economic explanations for Trump's rise. Both schools of thought failed to grasp the different ways in which economic suffering, racism, and community decline have interacted to prepare the ground for authoritarian populism. Who are the liberal intelligentsia? And the reason that I'm asking you this is because I'm trying to determine, is, is, are the liberal intelligentsia, do you see it as the punditocracy or is it the DNC itself? 
Well, I was thinking more of the punditocracy, actually, but the DNC, I think, in some ways was even more oblivious. Uh, what I pointed to at the uh, beginning of the article is how, uh, for example, certain uh, regular columnists, opinion columnists for the New York Times, including my esteemed CUNY colleague, uh, economist Paul Krugman, were very insistent on pointing to uh, racial animus as being the uh, one and only motivation of the Trump voter. And um, I wanted to um, connect a few dots and, and, and recognize that the Trump electorate is actually a bit more diverse in class and geographical terms and with uh, correspondingly diverse motivations. Uh, and I also want to connect some dots in terms of thinking about how economic distress um, is in some ways um, a, a factor, a, a, a condition that um, makes it easier to embrace racist and anti-immigrant and, and other reactionary kinds of arguments. Um, so I, on the one hand, I was looking both at the this compartmentalization of explanations for uh, the 2016 presidential election outcome, on the one hand, economic distress, on the other hand, racism, and also trying to look at the threads that connect these two aspects, both of which I think are clearly uh, relevant. How do we misunderstand the world around us when we do compartmentalize economic distress, distress from racism? Well, I think there are two things that uh, I tried to look at in the article that maybe um, would be useful to think about in relation to that question. Uh, the first is the phenomenon of uh, financial actors playing an increasing role in um, rural zones. And when I talk about capitalism in the title of the article, I'm really talking mainly about the more cutthroat version of capitalism that we've had since the 1980s. Uh, some people call it neoliberalism. The idea, it's an extremist idea, really, that the market can and should resolve all of society's problems. Um, and the importance of financialization is that increasingly financial actors, private equity groups, hedge funds, pension funds, and so on, are... Um, acquiring assets not in order necessarily to produce anything, but rather to see how they can strip them and flip them and load them up with debt and, and make money off of destroying them. And part of the genius of financial capital is, is its endless uh, create creativity uh, in terms of thinking of ways to do this. Uh, so it, it's not simply, if we look, for example, at deindustrialization. It's not simply that workers in Mexico or China uh, have lower wages, which they do, and it's not simply a question of factory flight or automation for that matter. Uh, it also has to do with the way uh, the financial actors loaded companies up with debt and, and then managed uh, through various mechanisms, including repaying the debt sometimes, to suck all the, uh, the juice out of those companies and uh, take it back to uh, major metropolitan areas. So there was a, a, a displacement of wealth geographically out of rural zones into major metropolitan areas and in class terms, a displacement of wealth upward, uh, which is part of the exaggerated levels of, of wealth and income inequality that we're, we're seeing in this society and elsewhere in the world. Um, I'm reminded, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the countryside, but mostly in developing countries. And in Latin America, I saw people and farms and businesses and communities constantly struggling to appropriate a larger share of the wealth that they produced. And sometimes they managed to do that, but often they weren't very successful. And, and those experiences in developing countries, I realized, uh, actually provided lessons for looking at the United States because there are a lot of parallels. Um, so the, the United States in, in, in certain ways is not as exceptional as, as many people uh, seem to believe. 
believe there's an active process um, of uh, some people have called it internal colonialism of the developed uh, metropoles preying on uh, rural and small town areas. Earlier, you were mentioning Paul Krugman and this kind of focus on racial animus that came out right after the election in 2016. What is that exaggeration of racial animus? What does that reveal to you about uh, liberal intelligentsia? intelligentsia? Is this an attempt to avoid discussing capitalism's shortcomings? Is this an attempt to avoid talking about neoliberalism? What does that kind of focus on racial animus reveal to you about liberal intelligentsia or the Democratic Party in general? Well, I don't think the focus on racial animus is wrong. Uh, I think in in many respects, it's important to call attention to that. but it also reflects in some ways a blindness to 30 years or so of downward mobility on the part of uh, a significant sector uh, of the population in the United States. Um, And the first victims of this were often people of color, but there were a lot of white victims too. And the process of downward mobility um, led people, uh, I think, to feel abandoned by the Democratic Party of the Clintons and the Obamas, for example, um, because they understood, people understood that these administrations were implementing policies that uh, actually favored the dominant groups uh, and were not very favorable to working people in many cases. Um, So I think it's, it's, useful to to acknowledge uh, the the racism of, of many Trump voters uh, but at the same time uh, one should not uh, by acknowledging the racism downplay or ignore the processes of downward economic mobility that have been very dramatic and, and very harmful and hurtful and it have led uh, many people to feel abandoned by the Democratic Party. You write that since the turn to more cutthroat free market policies in the 1980s, American capitalism has systematically underdeveloped rural and small town regions of the United States. But was that good for capitalism? Is capitalism better off than it would be if it had not systematically underdeveloped rural and small town America? Because I think that's that's the issue. The issue is that it's still incentivized, that it's still a good thing for America to underdevelop rural and small town America. Well, that's uh, possibly a much larger discussion, and one would have to, I think, take into account uh, different uh, varieties of capitalism and approaches to capitalism. Uh, Certainly, the type of um, poverty and economic desperation uh, and stress that one sees in the United States is different than in other normal developed countries. When I start to look at the poverty indicators, um, it's interesting that 12 or 14% of the US population is below the official poverty line. But what is maybe more important to consider is that there's another 40% that are called uh, Alice households, asset limited, income constrained, employed. These are the people who are within about 150% of the poverty line. So they're, they're not technically poor. And they're often working multiple low wage jobs, never knowing what shift they have the next week. And, and it's not an exaggeration at this point to say that a majority of the U.S. population is poor or near poor. This is a long-term process. It's occurred over the last 30 or more years. Um, so one of the things that prompted me to write this article is why aren't people talking about this in those terms? Why don't we acknowledge that a majority of the population is poor or near poor? Even our most progressive presidential candidates are not saying it in those terms. And there doesn't seem to be massive outrage from the media. The outrage that um, becomes relevant is the outrage of those who are directly affected and who become uh, susceptible to the appeal of authoritarian demagogues. You write that in July 26, or 2018, 
The White House Council of Economic Advisors claimed that the war on poverty, first initiated during the Johnson presidency in the 1960s, was now largely over and a success. This rosy assessment flew in the face of ample evidence that things were getting much worse. So, wait, what? In 2018, the Trump administration said it won LBJ's war on poverty. How did I miss this mark, at least for comic relief? At the very very least, just for comic relief. Why? Why did the Trump administration even recognize that there ever was a war on poverty, let alone it being started by a Democratic president, let alone now co-opting it and saying you were victorious. What do you think the Trump administration's or the president's political strategy was in doing so for his supporters? What was it? What was the point? Well, I, I'd be reluctant to uh, venture an opinion about what their political strategy is, because it seems that they kind of lurch from one thing to the next. But uh, I will say that that a report that I quoted where they claim that the war on poverty is over and that it was won was part of a larger report intended to justify imposing work requirements on recipients of cash benefits like SNAP, food stamps, uh, and, and uh, social security disability and so on. Um, so in the context of trying to uh, make everybody uh, work whether or not they were able to um, and 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 so on they, they made this claim about the war on poverty is over uh, it's it's clearly ridiculous even a cursory uh, look at the statistics um, points to a, a much more dire situation we've got 18 and a half million people living in extreme poverty. And according to the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, who did a visit, a site visit to the United States uh, last year, he says there are 5.3 million in what he calls third world conditions of absolute poverty. Um, if we look at uh, the the study that was done on uh, households surviving on two dollars per day per person, uh, that was one and a half million households uh, with three million children. There are nine million Americans that have zero cash income. And uh, there have been several studies that indicate that Americans don't have often uh, even $500 in savings uh, to use in case of an emergency. It could be a car repair, it could be medical bills, and so on. So there are many, many indicators that point to a situation of very considerable desperation. And, and the political thing that maybe is, is most striking as a result of this is that uh, all of these elements contribute greatly to very high stress levels and anger levels. And there's a large psychological research literature that shows that people under severe stress are more likely to dislike or even hate outgroups. Those outgroups could be immigrants, it could be racial, ethnic, sexual, or other religious minorities. Uh, and they also tend to be more receptive to non-evidence-based claims. So um, in a way, there's a fairly direct connection between these processes of impoverishment and the creation of a, a, a fairly stressed out, uh, often desperate population and the proliferation of fake news and conspiracy theories and so on. How much do you think those conspiracy theories, uh, authoritarian populists depend on those conspiracy theories because they just refuse to have a critique of capitalism, to hold capitalism accountable in any way for its shortcomings? Um, there, there's clearly uh, an effort to use fake news and uh, the uh, propagation of conspiratorial theories Uh, it, it's clearly an effort, I think, to throw people a little bit off the track. Um, but I think also one has to understand it within the context of a society where education is chronically underfunded and often starved, where in rural areas in particular, there have been consolidations of school districts and closings of rural schools, where public libraries are shutting down, and people um, have fewer 
and fewer resources and less and less background that could give them the critical thinking ability to uh, evaluate some of the claims that are being made and to understand that uh, some of these claims are a lot of baloney. So what happens when public libraries close? What happens when local newspapers, local radio stations shut down? What happens when our local source of information is supplanted by uh, national forms of uh, mediation? That is, instead of reading the local paper, listening to the local uh, radio station, or watching the local TV news, instead, what we're doing is watching Fox News and MSNBC. What happens to our political discourse when it changes from the local to the national? Well, there's clearly a simplification and a homo homogenization of political discourse, and people become a little bit more compartmentalized in terms of uh, not interacting with people who might have divergent views. So there's less dialogue in the society, certainly. Uh, one of the things I looked at in the article is the creation of what some people call news deserts. Uh, which happened when uh, local media, particularly uh, local newspapers, closed down. And in part, this has to do with the uh, decimation of retail businesses, uh, because uh, those businesses are no longer advertising in, in local newspapers, and, and more people are turning to the internet as well for their news. But one of the things that uh, happens when a small town newspaper closes is that people lose some of their pride in place and their identity with place. Um, there is nobody to report births and deaths and marriages and, and, and the achievements of the local uh, sports teams. Nobody is looking over the shoulder of local politicians, so corruption increases. And, and there's no respected local check on the outlandish things that people might be reading online. We are speaking with anthropologist Mark Edelman. He is author of the Jacobin Magazine article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. Mark is working on a project on the history of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of People and Other People Working in Rural Areas, uh, Rights of Peasants and Other People Working in Rural Areas, which the General Assembly adopted in 2018 after a 17-year campaign by transnational agrarian movements and human rights organization. He was part of the convening group of the Emancipatory Rural Political Politics Initiative and International Research and Action Collaborative on Authoritarian Populism in the Rural World. In other words, Mark's an expert on populism, authoritarianism, and the rural world. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Edelman NYC. You argue the war on poverty did not end in victory, wiping out poverty in 2018. Writing after 1980, wages stagnated and became detached from productivity growth. Between 1940 and 1980, the wage gap between poorer and richer cities had narrowed by an annual rate of 1.4%. But after 1980, this convergence ended. Is there any kind of even a, an unwritten social contract between workers and capitalism that the more they produce, the more they get paid. Because I'm wondering how sustainable capital, capitalism is when worker production results in profits for shareholders and bosses, investors, but not for the workers whose work is actually causing the increase in production. Is capitalism sustainable when the social contract of wages and productivity is broken? Well, that's really the question of the day, isn't it? I, I think I would say that there was this period that the French sometimes call the 30 glorious years from, from the end of World War II, 1945 or so, until the mid-70s, when in most developed countries and in many developing countries as well, real wages increased from year to year, living standards increased very dramatically, and there was a social contract of a sort always a focus of struggle between uh, workers and employers, uh, but there was a social contract and a certain uh, amount of regulation of capital and uh, clear rights accorded to working people, uh, the right to unionize, uh, card check, and so on. And increasingly after the 1980s, 
all of this has gone by the wayside in the interest of creating exaggerated profits for uh, corporations and financial institutions to the detriment of, of working people, and, and not just people who are working in factories on farms, but even to those of us who work in public universities uh, who have seen our wages stagnate and who are uh, dealing every day with severe austerity. You uh, point out, well, the thing that I just don't understand, why doesn't small town and rural America recognize that the processes that led to their areas under development were austerity, often driven by tax cuts, as well as private equity, that is neoliberal capitalism, and the policies advocated and advanced by President Ronald Reagan? Why not? Why don't they recognize? Why do they hold responsible tax cuts, neoliberalism, and Reagan for their decline? Well, that, that's a very good question, and I, I would not want to uh, speak about um, rural people in broad strokes and in generalizations, because there's a huge amount of diversity of views, as well as uh, diversity along every imaginable uh, demographic dimension. Um, so I think uh, it's risky to generalize, but I think that uh, the process of impoverishing people, then loading them up with debt, because Americans are highly indebted for their automobiles, for education, medical debt, college education, and so on, uh, as well as small business debt and farm debt, all of this creates a very problematical mix of, of stress and uh, it's a way of keeping people off balance because people are working so hard and uh, often with such peculiar schedules, uh, not getting the rest and leisure that they need, that it's difficult to spend the time uh, that one really needs to develop a more uh, fine-grained analysis of, of what is going on and, and, and what forces are responsible for one's uh, situation. You write a rapidly growing number of the poor sell their blood plasma twice weekly in order to survive. This is something I experienced earlier in my life. Uh, blood collections doubled between 2008 and 2016 while plasma exports are booming. Frequent donors often suffer negative health consequences. So can plasma get us out of poverty? Can the growing market that profits off poverty trickle down uh, its gains to those in poverty? Can the market simply save us from poverty? even if that means everyone selling plasma and whatever bodily fluid becomes profitable? Well, I don't think anybody is going to uh, emerge from poverty by selling their blood plasma. And if they do manage to do it, it's going to be a tremendous cost to their health. Um, the, the market uh, is... is a wonderfully efficient way of allocating factors and, of, and of, of, of generating wealth. The problem is that you have to have at least some sort of social distribution in a market economy, or the market begins to lord it over society and, and to to rule a society. And uh, our, our job as, as citizens and concerned human beings is not to let that happen, uh, because the market, if left to it, itself, uh, and we're not talking about perfect markets here either, as economists call them. We're talking about markets dominated by monopolies and, and, and very large actors. Uh, if left to itself, the market um, squeezes the life out of society and out of people, and the, the blood plasma uh, trade and the upsurge in, in people selling blood plasma is perhaps just a, a sort of literal uh, material manifestation of that. You also write that some of the few retail outfits still proliferating in this bleak environment are dollar stores, which drive established groceries out of business. So can't we all end poverty by investing in dollar stores? 
Well, you might end poverty for yourself if you invested in a dollar store, um, but the dollar stores tend to serve uh, people who have very few resources and don't have other alternatives in terms of uh, having a decent diet. And, and one has to look at this as well as being part of what contributes to the stress, because if one eats only out of food that one gets at a dollar store, one is not likely to be in tip-top health. And this becomes another stressor on top of all of the stressors related to work and indebtedness and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's part of the picture. And, and the dollar stores are indeed uh, proliferating. One can see that in pretty much any rural area that one drives through uh, at the expense of, of grocery stores that might have fresh produce and, and, and a better selection of, of uh, nutritious food. You write low-income Americans spend a huge part of their income on gasoline and the cars that are essential for commuting to work, especially in rural areas. The lax systems of public transport, evangelical Christian and right-wing talk shows dominate the airwaves on those unavoidable long-distance journeys. A hospital visit or car repair can trigger a downward spiral that culminates in job loss and homelessness. So the obvious answers, to me at least, seem to be affordable and accessible mass transit or higher pay to maintain personal transportation or purchase better options. So mass transportation funded by public resources or higher pay, higher wages from employers. Yet the liberal intelligentsia I've seen over the last few years blames those in small town and rural America for their own demise, saying they vote against their own best interests, their own self-interest by voting down tax and millage increases, supporting deregulation of business and opposition to labor. How much blame or responsibility should small town and rural America take for their underdevelopment, for the austerity? and private equity that hurt their communities. Did, by their own choices, small-town and rural America undermine what was best for them? Well, it is lamentable that um, many people don't understand uh, the extent to which um, small towns, the poorer states in the United States, uh, are net takers of federal tax revenue, and the more affluent states, the Californias and New Yorks and so on, are net givers. Um, and it's um, a, a shame that people uh, cling to the comforting myth of self-reliance and, and toughing it out um, because we are members of a society and there is a responsibility uh, that we have to each other. Um, I think it, it's, you know, it's, we, we want to be wary of, of blaming the victims of these processes. Uh, these processes have created um, a, a situation that uh, is difficult to understand, uh, even if one has the background and the time to, to investigate what's going on. And um, I'd be very reluctant to say that people are uh, to blame for their own situation. Um, I, I would agree that in many cases, people vote uh, for politicians who do not have their uh, real interests at heart. You write mutual savings banks used to power small town economies. The directors contributed to local institutions, new clients, and sometimes made loans based on trust. You said that that has changed, and in that process, they've sucked wealth out of communities, imposed stricter lending criteria, and cut the ground out from under small businesses. If the problem is the banks and outsiders sucking profits out of small town and rural America, why isn't small town and rural America more anti-banks, more anti-big corporations like Walmart and, and any fast food places that come into town. You know, when a new chain rolls into town, so often small town America celebrates it. And it's, it's in the big cities, too. The Cheesecake Factory opened in Detroit. It was on the front page of the paper in Detroit. Shake Shack opened up here in Chicago. It's on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. Why does the media, why do we celebrate a new chain coming to town when it is in competition with a local business, a local small town, family-owned business that we at least imagine or want to be the backbone of the U.S. economy? 
To me, it's completely understandable that people want inexpensive groceries and inexpensive appliances and jobs. And I think the celebration of a new Walmart or something like that is, is, is completely understandable in those terms. Um, it's difficult sometimes for any of us to uh, understand how the effects of a new uh, giant chain store reverberate outward and, and, and result in this retail apocalypse, as I call it. Um, and, and really what I was trying to do in this article was to uh, connect some of those kinds of dots. You know, first on main streets, we had mom and pop businesses. The Walmarts and the big malls came in and destroyed many of those. It'd be hard to have a small hardware store competing uh, near to a Walmart, for example. And after that, uh, e-commerce begins to become more important and many of the malls begin to close. So the jobs and the the commerce that existed even at that level uh, is also disappearing. Um, and uh, all of these things contribute uh, to eviscerating communities and destroying community life. The, the question of the banks that, that, that you mentioned, I'm reminded of a conversation I had many years ago in Saskatchewan and, and the prairies in Western Canada. This old farmer said to me, he said, what do you notice about the communities that are thriving and the ones that are dead? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, if you look, the ones that are thriving have a credit union and a cooperative grain elevator. And his point was that those are communities where the wealth was still staying to some significant extent within the community. The destruction of the banks was very insidious. And in the 1980s and after, private investors began to put little deposits in mutual savings banks all over the United States because they anticipated that these uh, mutual banks would become publicly uh, public stock uh, operations. And if you had a deposit in a mutual bank, you had the right to buy as much stock as you want. So you could put $100 in a bank and then right before the initial public stock offering, you could buy $10 million in stock at the insider price. And that would go up 15% or so on the day of the IPO. And, and often, you know, 50% or so more uh, soon after. And then when they managed to take those uh, local banks and sell them to regional banks, sometimes the stock would go up 200% or even 400% above the initial public offering level. Um, this was a disaster for small towns because these local banks would often lend to a local business person or an individual on the basis of trust. I know you. You've been in this community my entire life. You're not going anywhere. You are a safe bet in terms of being honorable and repaying the loan I'm going to give you. So it was on that basis a lot of the time. They wouldn't have to look at somebody's credit rating uh, and so on. But with the destruction of local banks, banking, um, it severely undermined the dynamism of the Main Street economies. You write that more than 440 rural nursing homes have closed or merged in the last decade, often because Medicaid payments aren't enough to cover their costs. When residents have to relocate to distant facilities, they're cut off from lifelong friends or elderly spouses who are unable to make the drive. So the elderly are being cut off from rural areas. You point out that those who want or need easy access to a hospital, uh, that's not accessible anymore, uh, including those who need prenatal care. Is everyone from newborn children to new mothers to small business owners to the elderly being forced out of rural areas? Is small town America collapsing, being abandoned soon to be ghost town America? Well, there are certainly ghost towns, and there have been ghost towns for a long time. I think it's unusual that it reaches the point of being a complete ghost town. Um, but there are towns where the population is significantly elderly, 
and where the more entrepreneurial or imaginative or better educated young people have left for urban areas because that's where the opportunities are. So there is a, a demographic uh, shift that is occurring. And you mentioned uh, nursing homes and hospitals. The health indicators in the United States are actually also a cause for uh, alarm. Um, the United States has, I think, uh, the third highest life expectancy in the Western Hemisphere after Canada and Costa Rica. And if you look at Canada and Costa Rica, the most notable thing is that they both have very robust public health systems with single payer and people live to uh, a ripe, healthy old age. Uh, in the United States, in contrast, life expectancy went down for three years in a row, which is a terrible indication of something being wrong and highly unusual for a developed country. Last year, it went up slightly by about one month, and there was a huge amount of excitement in, in, in the business press about, oh, maybe we've reversed this negative trend that was going on. But the excitement, I think, is, is premature because there were three years where life expectancy went down. Uh, one of the things that I look at in, in the article of uh, how capitalism underdeveloped rural America is the uh, levels of maternal mortality that exist in some regions of the United States. And I started to look at the uh, maternal mortality statistics, that is women who die in childbirth, which is always a sign of uh, a problematical health system. And in the state of Louisiana, which was number 50 out of the 50 states, the levels were at the level of El Salvador and Iraq. Uh, so. There, there's a, a health crisis that also can't be ignored, that is very severe, and it absolutely must be addressed uh, if we are to move forward in any meaningful way in this country. One last question for you, Mark. We've been speaking with anthropologist Mark Edelman. He is author of the Jacobin Magazine article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America, a Toxic Brew of Economic Suffering, Racism, and Community Decline, Prepared the Ground for Authoritarian Populism in America's Devastated Rural Areas. Trumpism will not be defeated unless the left can promote a progressive agenda to rebuild rural America. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audiences going to hate your response. Uh, you write about conspiracy theories and post-factual claims. And for me, it always seems that these conspiracy theories on the far right just benefit the businesses who profit from neoliberal financialization. Why can't the left sell the conspiracy theory, if you will, of neoliberal financialization to small town and rural America? After all, it's true, which is something you cannot say for the many conspiracy theories on the right, including, apparently, Democrats are secretly torturing and killing children to extract a life-extending chemical from their blood. If that is believable, why isn't neoliberal financialization believable in small town and rural America? Well, I, I wish I knew uh, the answer to that uh, question. I think sometimes, um, again, particularly when people are off balance because of their work and health and, and stress situation, uh, simple uh, explanations are um, appealing inaccessible and perhaps believable. Um, to understand financialization and neoliberalism requires uh, a bit of patience and a bit of time and, and some reflection that many people uh, don't actually have uh, the time and energy for. And it means um, being uh, willing to listen to people who have different points of view, which is an increasingly uh, challenging thing in today's United States. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I do think, though, that um, as outlandish as many of these conspiracy theories that are circulating are, the, the issue of uh, neoliberalism, uh, when you put it uh, next to those, it, it's kind of dry and it's kind of complicated. 
and um, it requires some some deep thought, possibly uh, by people who are not accustomed to thinking about these kind of issues in these terms. And, and that's really, I think, the work that uh, progressive people have to do a bit more of to, to open up that conversation, to have that conversation. And uh, it means being willing to listen and also be being willing to to argue with evidence and to assert the importance of evidence-based reasoning in the face of all of the outlandish stuff that uh, people are sometimes uh, talking about and sharing online. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I just wanted to say that we our conversation just went for about 40 minutes, but our listeners need to go read your article because there's a lot more than just what was covered in our discussion. Again, see Mark Edelman's article at Jacobin Magazine, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. This is a fascinating read, and I truly appreciate you being on our show this week. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a delight. All right, take care. This is hell. A delight. <laughs> this week's question from hell is... What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene? What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio right now. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question and the winner we will reveal tomorrow will win a book we featured on the show yesterday. Brown Boucher and Robert Fletcher's book, The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from Al? Oh, yeah. What should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? Corner Store D says, this is all via Twitter. Corner Store D says, uh, post an image of the Wall Street Bull statue. <laughs> Lee C says, a hermit crab living in a plastic shell. <laughs> Bonus points if that plastic is an SSRI pill bottle or sleepwalking into extinction. Oh, by the way, these are all super cheery, Chuck. <laughs> Good. Uh, Poopianus Maximus <laughs> uh, wrote Adam the A-bomb. Uh, Derive Column, it's probably a reference to something I'm not smart enough to understand, posted, gritty, something I am smart God, enough you, to understand. You know what? That was just I was too asking for it. I know, I know, I know. Hogley Ferguson says... And by the way, if anybody else answers gritty, do not read their answer on the air. Hogley Ferguson says, throw some googly eyes on the Great Pacific garbage patch and call it a day. <laughs> Pearl Jolly says, feral pigs, of course. <laughs> Jeff Lonow says, a dead bee. Bussy Phillips, oh, geez, that's very good, uh, wrote, the Nazgul. <laughs> Richard McSundy says, a sea turtle crapping plastic for a day straight. And I'm not making this up. And finally, John R. says, The domestic chicken. <laughs> what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? Now let's go to Facebook. Shane M. says, Stroidy, the giant asteroid that killed all the dinosaurs, coming back to finish the job. <laughs> Todd K. says, Hail Satan. Okay. Hmm? Uh, Garrett S. says, The mutated thug from the end of the, Robo of the first Robocop film. <laughs> Dan K. posted an image of uh, Esso the Tiger from uh, the Esso... Yeah. Petroleum Company? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Canada's Exxon. Oh, okay. That's a cute tiger, at least. And Mike A says, Kenny G. <laughs> Via email, Tucker L says, The symbol of the Anthropocene should be a sharpened cross impaling a lotus, then a star of David, then a crescent moon and a star embedded into a base of a yin-yang being split in half, all of which uh, embedded into the poor earth, supporting it all and dripping with blood and oil mixture. Well, That's Tucker I'm, L. I think I'm tripping. I think someone just watched Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> uh, Kevin W. says, The statue of Ozymandias from the Shelley poem and or the kid from Omelas. KCC says, Mr. Creosote. <laughs> uh, Pete V. said, The Michelin Man. Sure. Jer Jeremy T. says, The Pornhub logo, LOL. <laughs> uh, Gorilla G. says, Cthulhu on a Segway. <laughs> and finally, Andrew P. says, A plastic bag body with bottled water arms and legs and a gas handle face. <laughs> Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or email myself or Alex. Chuck at thisishell.com. Alex at thisishell.com. We will announce the winner t on tomorrow's show and the winner receives the book that we discussed yesterday, Brown Boucher and Robert Fletcher's book, 
book, The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Uh, live from Paris, journalist Colin Kinneber will be on to talk about his Descent magazine piece, Can Extinction Rebellion Survive? XR promised to transcend politics as we know it. Yet politics has a stubborn way of catching up with those who disavow it. Tune in to tomorrow's live streaming show at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out who won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank... Alex for producing today's show, Mark Edelman for being our guest, and I want to remind everybody, yet again, we no longer have This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday nights. They have moved to Friday nights, and they're now going to start a little bit later at 7 p.m. on Friday nights, 7 p.m. on Friday nights at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, so I hope to see you all then. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.